Thank you for joining us. Remember, you can watch our services live and view our archive at StevensCreekChurch.com, the Stevens Creek app, or on our Roku channel. And if our ministries have touched your life, we'd love to hear about it. Send us an email to mystory@stevenscreekchurch.com. We hope today's message encourages and inspires you. Enjoy the message. Well, good morning. You glad to be in the Father's house? Say, I am. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad that Grovetown is with us in South Augusta. As Marty mentioned, I was on staff at what was known as the Fleming Church of God back in 1987, 88, 89. I already saw a couple of folks this morning that were hanging out with us back then. So it's great to be with you guys and online. I'm always honored and humbled when a pastor lets me stand in their house and share with their people. So thank you, Marty. Brian and I have known, as he mentioned, uh, Marty and Patty for 40 plus years now. And uh, Marty and I did go to university together, school together, college. Um, we didn't run in the same group. Marty ran in a group that went to class in chapel. And, uh, <laughs> and I found Jesus at some point along the way. Um, but it's an honor to be with you. And uh, I love what's happened with the Dream Center. Marty took us over, he and Patty, to uh, see that last night. And, and uh, then we drove down through the hood behind it where we used to live. Uh, and uh, and it's still the hood. So anyway, um, hey, I grew up, I like people know who, who I am. I grew up in the mountains of Virginia. My dad was a pastor. He grew up in the mountains of West Virginia. Uh, alcoholic father, my grandfather, abusive. Dad left home, went to the military, came back when he was 21, went to this little church called Conklin Town Church of God in Conklin Town, West Virginia, where he accepted the Lord, received the Spirit, and was called to preach and started preaching. And that was 85 years ago now. And uh, back then, there were a lot of rules and regulations and legalism. And so dad just passed that along to my brothers, my sister, and myself. And so I grew up in a pretty legalistic environment. Everything was a sin. And I, I remember I was 13. My brother was 12. I looked at him. I said, we're going to hell. Ain't nothing we can do about it, brother. So uh, we might as well just enjoy the journey. So anyway, uh, thankfully discovered grace at some point. I uh, accepted the Lord, went to Lee and uh, left Lee and went into full-time ministry. So 14 years as a youth pastor and associate pastor, Ron and I got married. My wife sat beside Patty and uh, we started having baby girls. So we have five girls, Cassie, Kelsey, Kenzie, Kayla, and Carly. And uh, that's why I look like this. But anyway, um, <laughs> we have five daughters who've now given us nine grandchildren, eight of which are boys. So all of my girls are giving me little grand studs now. And uh, Number 10 coming in February, so it's a lot of fun. But we had four little girls 25 years ago. I was on staff at a church north of Atlanta, and, and life was good. We it, it, a, a large youth group that was invigorated and exciting and loved Jesus and uh, doing young adult ministry and going to the inner city and doing work and coming back and going on mission trips at various places around the world and speaking, and it was fun. And people were coming to know Jesus and get discipled and and it was, it was good, but we would end a service or a retreat or a trip, and I would look at Ron and go, is, is this it? Is this all there is? Uh, we, nothing wrong, nothing upset us, nothing disturbed us. We weren't frustrated with church. We're just like, is this it? If this is it, I wish God would just say, this is it, and then I'd just settle in and be good, a good youth pastor, good associate pastor, eventually, hopefully a good pastor. But we just felt like, I just felt like there was something else. And 25 years ago, the bishop of our denomination and called my pastor and said, hey, we got this little church downtown Atlanta that's been around since 1969. Pastor left six months ago. Nobody wants to go. They got a few folks left. They got no money. The building's in disrepair. 
can you loan Bruce downtown for six months and we think he should probably close the church and sell the property. And so Ron and I talked about it and pastor sent me to do that. So I thought, well, this is good. For the next six months, I can speak every Sunday and we can sell the property and I can develop some more business acumen and understand how the process works and, and go back to our suburban life. We were living in the nicest house we'd ever lived in in a great subdivision. And uh, Rhonda would literally pull our two oldest girls across the street in the morning and in the evening to and from school in a little red wagon. Life was just good. So I thought, well, we'll just do this for a minute, right? Don't ever think God's going to let you just do something for a minute, right? He has a way of being tricky. And so uh, so went downtown, and our fifth or sixth Sunday at this little church, this young lady walked in. She stood out in the crowd, looked a little rough. At the end of the service, she walked down, and she was weeping, and she took me by the hands, and her words to me were, I've been hooking and stripping 14 years. Can you help me get out of the life? And we said yes. We didn't know what that meant, but we just said yes, and we led her to the Lord that morning. It was the coolest thing. She accepted Jesus, and I thought, well, this is cool. While we're closing the church, people are still accepting Jesus. Well, she came back the next Sunday, and she brought Bill with her. He was a 52-year-old alcoholic, hadn't been in church in 30 years, he said, and was one of her paying customers. And during the week, she said, I found something I think you need. Come go to church with me, and he did. And they sat right here on the second row. Bill was sitting on the aisle, and we started singing that little chorus, I need you more, more than yesterday, more than words can say. And about five minutes into worship, Bill falls out in the center aisle, starts wailing out loud and won't stop. So finally, I calm the music down. I go down. I go, can I help you? He goes, well, I think I need Jesus. And I said, well, we usually do that at the end of service. <laughs> I need to tell a cool story, and we got to have a soft song in the background. <laughs> and he's like, no, I just want him now. I'm like, all right, fine. So we led him to the Lord five minutes into church. <laughs> the next Sunday we show up, there are four more drug addicts and alcoholics. The next Sunday we show up and there are 10 more. And we walk in four months into what we thought was a six-month assignment and there are nearly 100 drug addicts, alcoholics, homeless folks have invited each other to church and are looking at us going, can you help us? And I looked at Ron and I drew on my deep theological training and I said, we've been conned by God, woman. <laughs> this is wrong on every level. Mountains of Virginia, great church up in the mountains of southwest Virginia, uh, 500 mountain folk. I'm kin to 100 of them. It's all right. So anyway, 500 folks. Everybody knew that's where I was going to go pastor for 30 years. I was going to do baby dedications and funerals and shake people's hand and speak every Sunday and hunt and fish and eat fried chicken and chocolate pie and watch Andy Griffith two hours every day. I knew what ministry was going to be. And now God was saying, how about go hang out in the hood the rest of your life? And we didn't know what to say except, okay. Right? We, we were at this intersection. We were at this crossroads. We were at this place where we had to decide, are we going to live life as usual? Are we going to be Christians as usual? Are we going to be ministers as usual? Or are we going to do something completely outside of anything we have ever dreamed about? And we still aren't really sure how we came to the yes answer. People ask us now, well, how did y'all decide to do that? And we go, we just said yes. Well, didn't you think about this and that? Well, not really. We just said yes. So 
We resigned our position and we accepted the pastor to that little church downtown 25 years ago this past July 2nd was my first Sunday. And, and I started City of Refuge because I knew what we were going to do wasn't going to look like regular church. And so we made the decision, and so a few months into that decision, Rhonda called me one morning out of her quiet time, and she was weeping, and I wasn't sure if something was wrong, and she said, darling, if we're going to impact a city, we have to go live in the city. If we want those among us to trust us, we have to live, we have to live among them to show them we trust them. And I said, I hate when you and God get together and start having conversations. So there's a lot to the story, but the short version is we made a decision to move our family. We had four daughters at the time. They were seven, five, three, and one. We made a decision to move into the third floor of this old 65-year-old church building in downtown Atlanta. You know, when they build churches, they don't put bathtubs in them. Strangest thing. So for the first six months, my girls took a bath in a number two wash tub we fill up with a green water hose. Our first night that we slept in a church, a drug addict tried to steal the vehicle, but he was so high, he hot-wired the windshield wiper motor. So I came out the next morning, the car's still there, and the wipers are going. I said, well, this is going to be a hoot right here, woman. Our first baptismal service, we had a baptismal pool back here, we, and I had to crawl under the stage to fill it up with water. So I was crawling under the stage. There's a homeless guy living under the stage in the sanctuary. Full bedroll, hot plate, radio, the whole deal. I'm like, scoot over, buddy. I got to turn on the water. <laughs> so, so we got to the point where we're ready to move in. I've packed up the U-Haul. I've moved all the stuff down. I've gotten the four daughters in my vehicle. I've taken them down. And Rhonda is still at the most beautiful home we'd ever lived in by herself. The house is empty. She's got the last few things in this old Jeep uh, uh, Cherokee we had. And she's trying to pull herself away from our wonderful environment. And she told me, she said, I walked through every room of the house and remembered all the fun we had had and all the good times and what the girls had done here and what they had done there. And I went out on the back deck and, and I saw that huge oak tree in the backyard with the tire swing where we'd pushed the girls. And she said, and I'm thinking about getting in my car and driving down to the ugliest living environment you can imagine. There were mice running around the building and the windows were stained glass and there had been a, a dormitory upstairs for boys in the past and so there's just a line of urinals in the bathroom. She goes, this is not where I want to go live. This is not where I want to raise our daughters. But the Lord has said, go. And so she said, I finally got in the vehicle and I started driving down 85 South, headed to Atlanta. And she said, I wept the whole way. I cried the whole way. I knew God had said go, but just because he says go doesn't mean it's always easy. And so she was battling the spirit in the flesh and she pulls into the parking lot. And she said that I knew that there were people waiting on us. There were a couple dozen people from the little church there that had prepared a meal and going to help us set up. And she said, I knew I had to smile and be engaging, but I couldn't figure out how. And she said, I noticed my Bible between the two seats in the front of the vehicle, and, and I picked it up, and this is not how we normally go looking for inspiration, revelation from the Lord, but she said, I just simply opened it, and it fell open to Joshua chapter 3. And here's what the word of the Lord says in Joshua chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. She said, I started reading early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan where they camped before crossing over. 
After three days, the officers went throughout the camp giving orders to the people. Here's what they said. When, the ark, when you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. And then verse number four says this. Then you will know which way to go because you have never gone this way before. And she said, when I realized that the Lord was saying, my spirit is moving through your life and my spirit, the Ark of the Covenant is moving through your family and my spirit is moving through the ministry I've called you and Bruce and your girls too. She said, when I realized that the Ark of the Covenant was moving through and inviting me to follow because the Lord knew that we have never gone this way before and he will show us the way. She said, suddenly I was confident that God was in charge and that everything was going to be okay. And she said, I'll wipe my tears, fix my face. She came walking into the church. She was smiling and beaming. She's personality plus. She was loving on everybody, finding out their name, their children's name, their grandchildren's name, where they're going to retire, what they had for dinner yesterday. It was like she became, they call her Mama Rhonda in the hood. She became Mama Rhonda right then just because she felt the Spirit of the Lord move through her camp and she chose to follow I'm quite confident this morning with a group this size, a number of people in this room, some of you are standing at your own intersections in life right now. You've got a decision to make as to whether or not you're going to take the new job offer or whether or not you're going to move to another place in order to be involved in something you want to. Some of you are trying to decide whether or not you're going to stay in the marriage that's run into rocky places. Some of you are trying to figure out whether or not you're going to ask the girl you've been dating to marry or not. By the way, young ladies always say no. So anyway, you've got, you got to figure it out along the way. Right, And you're trying to decide somebody in the room feels like you're supposed to be in full-time ministry. But to this point in time, it hasn't felt right to leave the security of where you are and launch into that place. And I believe this morning that the Father invited Ron and I to come by to just say, Hey, wait, make sure that the Ark of the Covenant, the Spirit of the Lord, the presence of God is moving through your life before you make any decision." But if he does move through your life, get up and follow him. For he will take you to a place that you have never been before. So we moved in this place and we start doing the work of the Lord and we start trying to figure out how to reach the last of loss and the least of these and, and to be light and to be hope and to be transformation in their lives. And it's not always easy. It's not always joyous. It's not always full of fulfillment. But we realized that there were three ingredients, three elements, three things inside the Ark of the Covenant that now were available to us and they're available to all of us today. When you do the historical research and understand the items inside the Ark of the Covenant, the first thing that was there were the Ten Commandments. The two tablets, the stones with the Ten Commandments were contained inside the Ark of the Covenant. And that reveals that if you follow the Ark of the Covenant, you follow God's heart. Because the Ten Commandments are not laws to restrict us. They are guidelines to free us. And that's God's heart. He wants us to live free. He wants us to live at liberty. And he says, oh yeah, by the way, here are the guardrails. And if you want to stay inside my blessing, live inside the guardrails. So God's favor or, or God's heart is revealed. 
The second thing inside the Ark of the Covenant was what was called Aaron's staff. So it was his, the, the walking stick that he had to traverse the difficult terrain throughout the desert. Five or six feet tall, whittled down where his hand could go around it. Obviously, it's a dead piece of wood. It's been separated from the root. But at a particular point in time when God wanted to reveal his power, he spoke to the rod and it began to bloom again, even though it wasn't connected to the root. And that's God's favor. He's saying, if you follow me, excuse me, if you follow me and do what I ask, my favor will rest upon you. And those places that you thought were dead will come back to life. And the third thing that was in the Ark of the Covenant was the jar of manna. And you know that manna represents provision, God's provision. For 40 years, he had dropped it out of the sky every day. And so he said to Rhonda and me and to our family, he said, if you will go and do these things I've called you to do, even though it's outside of your comfort zone and the things you normally do, I'll show you my heart, I'll give you my favor, and I will bring provision to you every day of your life. And so we started ministering to folks and we started taking in little girls whose moms were going to rehab or jail. And then when mom would get out, she didn't have anywhere to go and she would move in. I woke up one morning and started counting. Our fifth daughter had been born. Between Rhonda, our five daughters, the single women and their daughters, I was living with 23 women in this little building. I said, it's not going to work out for me too long, right? And we started caring for them. We started an after-school program. We started doing this and doing that. We started out growing the facility. And so we just realized that God was at work. A lot of things were happening. And because we were following him, we got to experience things not everybody else gets to experience. We got to experience a level of of crime and bad behavior that not every pastor gets to experience. Not only did they try to steal the vehicle the first night, but we lived there for six years and we were broken into 34 times. And three vehicles stolen off the property and guns and knives and fist fights. And I've been in superior court who guys, with guys who publicly declared they were going to kill me. And it was just more fun than we'd ever had in church before. I mean, we weren't having any business meetings about the color of the carpet or the music's too loud or traditional or contemporary. We're like, you didn't get shot. I didn't get shot. Hallelujah to the Lamb. It was just fun. Right? We had the opportunity to see things. We had the opportunity to engage and, and embrace spiritually and physically people that others would shun. We met Dennis two years before he passed away, and because of his past lifestyle and his drug addiction and sharing needles, he had the HIV and AIDS virus, and he was dying. And with the opportunity during his last two years of life to put clothing on him when he couldn't clothe himself and take him to the hospital when he couldn't get there on his own and to feed him meals when he didn't have any food. And we had the opportunity to watch him be lifted during his last seizure of life in our parking lot into the back of the ambulance to take him to the hospital where he died, knowing that he had been loved by Rhonda and my girls and myself and others who had joined us and that he had acknowledged Jesus Christ as his Savior. We had the opportunity to be a part of families that nobody else wanted to be a part of and, and to spend time at the dinner table with young ladies that we had picked up from jail who had been arrested from prostitution or who had been uh, beat up and abused and dropped on the side of the road. We used to get collect calls from the women's prison all the time and they would call and they would ask for help and I'd go and pick them up and i never forget one night we got a collect call and this lady started talking to me and I said, hold on, do we know each other? She goes, no sir, we've never met. And I said, well, how would you get my phone number? She said, well, it's right here on the wall beside the phone. Need help? Call Pastor Bruce, right? So I don't know if Pastor Marty's phone number's in the jail or not, but that's, I, I think that's part of credibility in life personally, right? 
Our offering bucket over the years has had loaded guns, heroin rigs, crack pipes, bags of weed, tasers, right? I tell other pastors, if you can't be arrested for your offering bucket, I'm not sure you're doing kingdom work. <coughs> it's just been amazing what God's done, right? All of these things just line up one after the other because we chose to say yes. You see, we didn't say yes to City of Refuge, which now has 10 locations around the country. We're opening three or four more in the next year. We didn't say yes to 35,000 people having their lives transformed. We didn't say yes to all the accolades and the things that God has brought our way. What we said yes to was one young lady who walked down the aisle and said, I've been hooking and stripping 14 years. Can you help me change my life? You see, God's not going to give us the full picture when the Ark of the Covenant passes through our camp. He's just going to invite us to go one step further than we have gone before. And he knows that there are many steps after that if we're willing to continue on the journey with him. So we outgrew the facility. And I sent a real estate buddy. I said, go over to Bluff and find me a building. The Bluff is 30314, highest crime rate in the state of Georgia, highest homeless population, highest number of HIV positive cases, more men and women in jail from our zip code than any zip code in the state. 60% of all the murders that occur in metro Atlanta, 13 counties, 7 million population occur in our neighborhood. I said, find me a building. He came back. He said, I found eight acres of land, five acres under roof, an eight-foot fence with razor wire and an armed guard at the gate. I said, well, our dreams have come true, man. Go see how much they want for that. He came back and he said, the owner said he'll take a million six hundred thousand. And my counteroffer was, well, we don't have any money. And he turned me down for six months and six months later gave it to us. Nineteen years ago, we moved in this space. Yeah, amen. <laughs> so 19 years ago, we moved in with the idea of creating what we call a one-stop shop for those in crisis, right? And this morning... 140 homeless women and children woke up on our campus where they can live for up to a year with medical, mental health, dental, vision, parenting classes, financial literacy, vocational training, vocational tra uh, a placement, a private daycare on campus, a private Christian school, vocational training with auto technician, culinary arts, cybersecurity, coding academy, security personnel, customer service, hospitality. We'll put 500 individuals a year into the workforce in Metro Atlanta. We've got a, 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 a program for women who've been sexually trafficked and abused and exploited. It. We're now more than uh, eight and a half years since we started that. More than 850 women have been served with love and compassion and the power of Jesus Christ. All because when the Ark of the Covenant passed through, we said yes. Now, don't think that every day's been a day full of happiness and joy and blessing and provision, right? There are other things along the way. We've had some of the most exciting church services you've ever seen, right? Because people that are getting free of their addiction will come in. Brandy came in at 19 years of old, had already been addicted and alcoholic for four or five years. She came and accepted the Lord. And for two years, about two years, every Sunday, either I would yell at her, how many weeks clean this week? Or she would yell from the back, 38 weeks clean this week this week, Pastor 42 this week, just yell out in church and everybody starts celebrating. It's the only church I've ever spoken in. We're just in the middle of the sermon. Somebody raise their hand and go, well, I got a question about what you just said. And we just stop and have dialogue. It's the only church I've ever been speaking in where Eddie and Alvin, two brothers, it's Eddie, Alvin, Billy, and Vernon, four grown crack addict alcoholics that still live with their mother. They've been arrested. Eddie's been arrested. We looked up 87 times, Alvin 49 times. Funny thing is, Eddie's aliases are Alvin, Billy, and Vernon. <laughs> so they use their brothers as aliases. 
So they come walking in church one midweek service. I'm speaking. They walk down front. Eddie's about 6'3", 6'4", 240. He picks me up, sets me on the front row, and Alvin gets behind, opens my Bible and says, everybody turn to Romans 9. I'm going to preach for a while. They both were high. Five minutes later, four of us had to tote both of them out, dump them in the parking lot. I'm like, you just don't get that everywhere you go. Right? We just had the most fun. We, we, we had these uh, unusual events that bring out the, some part of you that you didn't know was there. So we're asleep one night. Somebody's beating on the door. Three o'clock in the morning, I go to the door. I go, who is it? He goes, my name's Kenyatta. I go, what do you want? He said, I need food. I said, well, it's three o'clock in the morning. Come back at daylight. We'll talk about it. Five minutes later, he's beating on the door again. Five minutes later, again. I was not as sanctified then as I hope I am today. I said, Kenyatta, meet me in the back parking lot. So I put on a pair of shorts, no shoes, no shirt, go in the back parking lot. I go, what do you want? He goes, I want $3. And I said, well, I'll tell you what. I'm going to count to three, and if I can still see you, we're going to roll around this parking lot. And he said, well, before we do, let me tell you something. He said, five years ago, I saw a man slap my mama, and I said, okay. And the next morning when he came to my mama's house and opened the closet door, I was in the closet, and I commenced to stabbing him 17 times. And I said, well, let me tell you something. If you stay right there, I'm going to go get you $3. (laughs) You got to figure it out. Well, I got theology I didn't know I was going to get. Marcus showed up at church one Sunday. He hadn't been there in a long time. He was a homeless Vietnam vet, alcoholic, lived in the cemetery off of Cleveland Avenue. He showed up at church. I said, where you been? He said, you know, pastor, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, why are you here today? He said, well, I'm going to tell you what happened. He said, last night I got to feeling bad and I was ready to go to sleep. And he said, I still had a little bag of dope left. And he said, I put it on the other side of the tombstone I sleep behind, covered it up with some grass, and I laid down on this side and went to sleep. And he said, this morning I woke up and I heard the mower going. And he said, right as I was able to sit up and get my wits about me, the mower ran over my dope. And he said, I thought to myself, when God mows your dope, you got to go to church. I said, you just can't beat this, right? So if God mowed you dope, thanks for being here this morning, right? Just incredible things along the way that you just don't see everywhere else. And when you obey God, you think that provision and blessing and satisfaction is always going to be there. But when you start pouring your life into the lives of the broken and the weary and the worn out, it's not always going to end the way you want it to. And so we rescued Sarah from a trap house in Ringo, Georgia, where she had been an addict for years, been trafficked since she was a very young child, got her to our place and got her cleaned up, got her detoxed and started through her trauma-informed care therapy sessions and she accepted Jesus. And several months into that journey, we, we employed her on our staff as part of our facilities crew and she'd push a cleaning cart around and her Bible would be open. I walked by one day and her Bible's open to Psalm 139 and she's got it highlighted in yellow. You're wonderfully and fearfully made. And I took a picture of it and I go, how cool is this? She had this beautiful voice and sang all the time, and her favorite song was, It Is Well With My Soul. And we get to the year point, and she's graduating a program and going into the second phase of the program, and we give her a vehicle, and life's just good, and she's singing, It Is Well With My Soul. And then one Friday night, she just gets in the car we gave her and just drove away, just left. Four or five days later, I was able to get her on her phone, and I could tell she was in a bad spot. We tried to woo her back and kept talking to her. 
She left on Friday night. The following Saturday, early in the morning, I got a phone call from Sheriff's Department, and they said, is this Pastor Bruce? And I go, yeah. And they go, well, we've got your car. The car we'd given her was still in my name. They said, we've got your car from a crime scene, and you can come pick it up whenever you want to. And I go, well, what's going on? He said, well, I can't divulge any information. We just have your car. So I hang up, and five minutes later, the coroner's office calls. And they said, is this Pastor Bruce? And I said, it is. And they said, we need somebody to come identify the body of Sarah Gillespie. And they had found her back in the same trap house where we had rescued her, sitting cross-legged in the middle of the bed with the needle still stuck in her arm. And fentanyl had killed her in an instant. And you go, where's the Ark of the Covenant right now? And where's the Spirit of the Lord that told us if we would follow, He would take us to places we had never been? And you wonder about your investment and you wonder about your time and your talent and your treasure and you wonder if the seed you're planting is really taking root and, and you go behind the building and you scream out loud and you shake your fist at the heavens and you ask God where he is. And by the way, he's not offended by any of those emotions that rise up out of us periodically. But then you have to make a decision again after you have wept and after you have shaken your fist and after you have questioned, you have to decide what you do next. It's another intersection. It's another crossroads. It's another decision. It's another opportunity to say yes or no. And somehow you pull yourself up and you sing again. It is well with my soul. Because you know that you did what you were supposed to do and you invested like you were supposed to invest. And you pray to God that at the last moment, Sarah, who knew the truth, called out to him one more time. And then you get up and you brush yourself off and you realize there are 500 more Sarahs living on your campus that are going to come to your place, are going to come to your arms, are going to come to your table, they're going to come to your house. You can't let the fact that pain exists from yesterday rob you of opportunity that exists for tomorrow. And you have to keep going. And so then you remind yourself of the cool things that have happened along the way. And you remind yourself of the successes and the blessings and the joy. And you remember that Vanessa was traded by her mother when she was 12 years old to a man down the street for a fifth of liquor. And he raped her and she got pregnant at 12 and Defax took the baby and Vanessa out of the home and she never saw her child again and she went to foster care until she aged out at 19 and her family wouldn't let her come home and she went to the streets for the next 25 years. Heroin addiction, crack addiction, alcoholic, in and out of jail. And one Sunday morning at the liquor store on the corner, we're feeding breakfast, and Vanessa walks up and looks across the table at me and says, can I go home with you? Like, excuse me? Can I go home with you? And we just said, yes. We put her in a car. We take her to a detox center. She goes through that. We put her in a discipleship house for a year. Vanessa and I are totally different. We have different skin tones. We come from different backgrounds. Vanessa dips snuff and never spits. It's an amazing thing to see. It's a big old child right here, little drool. She's hilarious. She calls me Diddy. She calls her mama. She calls all my girls sister because she can't keep all the K's separated. Right? We just have this wonderful relationship. She started volunteering for us. 
and making sack lunches before we had our commercial kitchen. Vanessa and I had the same conversation on Sunday morning for years. I'd walk into church. She'd sit over on this side on the end of an aisle. I'd walk into church, be full of people. Vanessa go, Daddy, come over here right now. I walk over there and she goes, Today I'm going to need a 20. And I, every Sunday, same conversation. I go, Vanessa, why do you need $20? She go, Daddy, I got to buy some dip. And every Sunday, I go, Vanessa, I want you to stop dipping. Your breath stinks. You're going to get gum cancer, and it's a waste of money. And every Sunday, she'd look at me and she said, Daddy, let me tell you something right now. She said, I done quit using heroin. That's heroin for all you white people in the room. Anyway, she said, uh, she said, I done quit using hair on. I done quit smoking crack cocaine. I done quit drinking Colt 45. I'm going to have me some dip. And every Sunday, I give her a 20. It's just the coolest relationship. She got some health issues, so she got a little incontinence issue now, so she wears adult diapers. And so one Sunday, I walk in, Vanessa go, Daddy, come over here. I walked over, and she said, Today, I'm going to need 60. I said, $60. She goes, Daddy, I got to buy dip and diapers. I handed her $60. I said, that's a chapter in my next book right there, Dip and Diapers. <laughs> they called me last fall, September, October, Grady Hospital, and they said, this Pastor Bruce? I go, yeah. They go, uh, you are listed as the next of kin for Vanessa Cowens. I go, excuse me? They said, they've listed her as the, she's listed you as next of kin. And they said, she's had a series of seizures. She's unconscious. We've got her on medication. We'll keep you updated. I go, okay. So they call me every couple of weeks and update me. They called me just before Christmas. And they said, um, hey, is this Pastor Bruce? Yes, ma'am. She goes, uh, Vanessa is brain dead. And they said, we still have a feeding tube. And, but we know that it's only a few days, probably a couple of weeks until she'll pass away. So they moved her to hospice care. And uh, Steve that works for me, I said, go over to Vanessa's apartment, pack up all her stuff. We pay for her apartment. So he went over and packed everything up. And he brought a box in, and he handed me a sign envelope. He said, I think you ought to see this. And so I looked at it, and I said, what is it? He goes, well, it's an insurance policy. He said, a couple years ago, Vanessa took out a $10,000 insurance policy and has been paying $46 a month on his $10,000 insurance policy, and you're the beneficiary. Because she knows when, you, when she dies, you're going to take care of her, and she wants to be a part of her own end-of-life expenses. And I thought, well, how cool is that? And then I thought, you know what? Vanessa gets all her money for me, so for the last two years, I've been paying $46 a month for my own insurance policy. <laughs> and they called me in January, and I thought, well, this is it. She's gone. And they called me, and I said, is this Pastor Bruce? I go, yes. She goes, with so-and-so, social worker from hospice care. And I go, yes, ma'am. She said, Vanessa woke up and wants to know where her daddy is. And God had brought her back to life. During COVID, they wouldn't let me go see her, so we FaceTimed. It's the coolest thing. Vanessa's on FaceTime. She's immobile. She lost use of her legs, and so she's in the bed. She's just sharing the room with another lady. The curtain's pulled, and Vanessa's on FaceTime, and we're talking and we talked for a little while, and the other lady yells for Vanessa to be quiet. And, and I, was, I was really rewarded by Vanessa's response. It means that I've really shown her how to be a good follower of Christ and disciple. Her response was, hang on a minute, Diddy. If you don't shut up, I'm going to come over there and poleaxe you upside the head. All right, Diddy. And I go, yeah. <laughs> 
We got ready to hang up. And Vanessa says, I love you. I go, love you too. She goes, tell mom I love her. I go, Will. She said, tell sisters, tell them I love them. I go, yeah, I will. And she goes, oh, and daddy, you know what? I said, what? She goes, just one more thing. I go, yeah, baby. She goes, they won't let me have no dip in here. (laughs) We hung up the call, and I remember the day that I walked in the dining hall, and Vanessa was sitting at this 60-inch round white table making sack lunches, and she was picking up bread, putting meat and cheese on it, mustard, another piece of bread, putting it in a sandwich bag, brown bag, chips, fruit and water, making hundreds of them every day. And I walked in with a group of businessmen who had come to the city to look at what we do and we're thinking about investing in our work. And, and the first time Vanessa sees me every day for years, she looks up from whatever she's doing and she goes, hey. And I look at her and I go, hey. And that's, hey, how you doing? Love you. Hope you have a good day. See you later. All in one word. And so I walk in with this group of businessmen. We're starting to tour around and Vanessa looks up and she goes, hey. And I go, hey. And they went, huh. And we went a few more feet, and Vanessa went, hey. Now, we never had a double heyday before, right? So I look back, and I go, what? She goes, not hey to you, hey to them. And they're all like, hey. And then she did this. She pointed at them, and she said, y'all be quiet. And she pointed at me. She said, y'all see that man right there? Man right there saved my life. And she picked up a piece of bread. And she put meat and cheese on it. She put it in a sandwich bag and dropped it in a brown bag so somebody that was hungry would have something to eat. And I walked out after my men left and I called Ron and I said, we're good. We're good. The crime might continue. Somebody might try to kill me tomorrow. Somebody's going to steal something. Another Sarah's going to die somewhere along the way. But Vanessa thinks we saved her life. She doesn't understand justification and regeneration and a spotless lamb hanging on a cross. All she knows is she was hungry and we gave her something to eat. And she didn't have clothes and we put some on her back. And she was homeless and we gave her somewhere to live. And she didn't have a family and we became Diddy and Mama. So I'm not asking you to change the world today. I'm not asking you to change Augusta or Martinez, or Evans, or wherever you are. I'm not asking you to change Grovetown, South Atlanta. I'm just asking you to walk out of here and look around and go, God, if there's a Vanessa in my life, I'd like to say yes to her today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you would like to help support the ministries of Stevens Creek Church, please go to StevensCreekChurch.com and click the Give button. See you next time.